Hi guys, welcome back to A Different Life Story, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. It is an absolute honor for me to have a fellow traveler on my show, uh, a woman who has tried to live her life uh, as good as she could and really with hindsight did the same suicide in installments attempt that so many of us are doing. A woman who has been an overachiever. Um, we all look for the answers at the bottom of the bottle and, and this woman really went all out and uh, I'm, I'm very proud of her. I mean, that is, there are certain, certain high experts in our field. Now, may I introduce Sue Kerr, who is beaming in here from the UK, uh, which is actually an amazing thing because eight, nine years ago, uh, she was about to beam to other places and has has decided no no it is just maybe not maybe it's not yet time and here she is having undergone a transformation that is i mean phoenix is out of the ashes forget that that is just that is the she has done the next level above that okay so sue welcome onto my show bless you Stefan. thank you very much thanks for having me it's absolutely a pleasure complete pleasure to be here Indeed. Oh, thank you so much. So it is, we are, we are both alcoholics. We are both yeah. uh, living this life now, having completely transformed and having transcended the, the, the darkness and, and now both bringers of light. Uh, uh, you know, we are, we are so beautiful in, in what has occurred to us, has shaped us. It doesn't define us, our past, but it has given us the power now to do other things. But in order to go through all that shit and come out the other end, you have to start somewhere. So let's go back when you were a little, little girl. Did you wake up one day and say, I want to become an alcoholic? I think that sounds really, really good. Uh, I, I actually can say categorically no. <laughs> but I can also say, but by the same token, I was, I, I don't know what it was like in, in the area of the world where you grew up, but in the area where I grew up in, in Northern England, in the UK, um, it was standard practice to dip a baby's dummy in a glass of whiskey and uh, put the dummy in their mouth when they were teething. My father came to tell me quite late on in life that actually it never did you any harm. You went straight to sleep when I did that. You know, it soothed your teeth. And I actually remember saying to him, actually, no, dad, it didn't. It got me pissed. I was I was maybe six months old and I was pissed on whiskey and nobody knew. <laughs> so, no, I, I don't think anybody consciously sets out. I have a I have a saying, a mantra, if you like, that that the chains of habit are too weak to be felt unless they're too until they're too strong to be broken. It's beautiful, and uh, and and certainly as a six-month-old baby suckling on a on a pacifier that's doused in whiskey, that that clearly was never on my agenda for life. But but maybe life had other intentions for me. Clearly, it turned out that it did. <laughs> when you grew up, so the whiskey was around. So did, mm. were your parents uh, drinking a lot? Um, my my mum was was teetotal almost, to to my knowledge. Um, mm. Even as an adult, I don't remember her drinking very much at all. 
Mm. Dad was a different kettle of fish. He was a, he was an atypical Yorkshireman. He was a miner. He worked hard. He played hard. He never missed a day's work in his life and was proud of that. But he would, he would, once he, once he'd left the miners, once he left the mines rather, and he went into steel working and, he, and as a steel worker, they worked a pattern shift, a shift pattern that was a three-week rotation. Mornings, they started early mornings. Afternoons, they started midday. Nights, they worked overnight. And he called the afternoon shift the dead man's shift because in those days, he, he meant he started work before the pubs opened, but he finished work after they closed. And his analogy of that was he, he hated that third week in every month because it was a dead man's shift and all he could do was have a drink at weekends. So he grew alcohol was very present in our lives through the way my father lived his life, um, but not to the degree that it caused him any great stress or, or problem as far as I'm aware. Mm. It was just a it was just more typical of the era that we were we were living in the 60s. Exactly. Exactly right. And and I think that needs to be accepted. Different, different norms, mm. different, different lives that yeah. people lived where smoking was not frowned upon everyone no. was smoking um where alcohol was part and parcel of it and if you were not drinking then you were a real anomaly in that society and that's true and that that applies to to yorkshire that applies to to the, to the north of england that applies to germany probably just as much i mean alcohol yeah. certainly was around uh, my myself it was normal to have alcohol there and yeah people were uh you know children would get a sip of the wine people yeah. you know it was all part and parcel and i don't think there was any any bad intentions from our parents on the contrary they they thought they were doing the right thing they thought Absolutely. they were so and yeah. i think that needs to be recognized nowadays we we yeah. can't judge our parents by today's standards that's absolutely it was a different time and place and i always say to the people i work with these days i always say the thing is we none of us know what we don't know mm. they did the best they could with what they had exactly we as parents i'm a parent and in turn and my children are parents each generation of parents do the best they can with what they've got at that time mm. exactly you know and, and and like you say there is no judgment i mean there was for me there was an element of judgment attached to the way i grew up because although my mother wasn't a drinker, my 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 mental health career, as I came to call it, started in childhood. Um, you know, I, I, at best at best I was tolerated. At worst, I was a whipping post, and and not much in between. So so the mental ill health began quite early on, in that I became a people pleaser, saying yes when no would have sufficed, and 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 so on. and and that's that sort of that learned behaviour pattern became. A repetitive cycle throughout my life it was something that I was I thought for a very long time in fact I thought until circa eight and a half years ago I thought it was something that was impossible to unlearn I learned very quickly in my very rapid decline in the end that actually if I didn't learn I'm pretty damn quick then I actually wasn't going to be around very much longer um, so it's amazing how quickly you can learn something when your very life depends on it and you actually realize that you want to keep that life. You actually don't want to throw it away. Um, it's been a steep learning curve in this last eight years. That is for sure. <laughs> you spoke so out of my heart, <laughs> uh, but let's, let's go back again. It is when you then grew up a little bit older, how did you, 
how you, you were you didn't have a happy childhood. So what did you do in order to escape from that childhood? Um, I have to say, yeah, I think overall my childhood, I, I, I was, uh, there was an area of my childhood that wasn't happy. I was very blessed to be surrounded by loving grandparents on either side yeah. of the family and an extended family and, and a father that loved yeah. all his children. I'm the, I'm the elder of four siblings. So for me, there was just a little sort of a scratch, a niche that I couldn't scratch. Um, but in terms of escapism, if that's what you mean, I, I very... One of my grandmothers taught me how to read when I was around about four years old. And uh, by the time I was 12, I'd read all of Dickens. Oh, wow. I'd, read, I'd read Brave New World. I'd read Jane Eyre and so on and so forth. So my escapism, if you like, came through the, the, the love of both the written and the spoken word. Sort of diaries, little, little girls' diaries. You know, you keep it. Nobody can read your deepest, darkest secrets and all that business. And, uh, and it's something that never left me. I, I, have, a, I have an inherent love of... of both the written and the spoken word and um and as things have turned out it's the spoken word that's um that's become an, an integral part of my life these days so yeah for me the escapism was because these are the this was these were the days obviously pre pre more than two channels on your tv at tops mm. you know the, the tv channel went off at half past 10 at night there was no sort of multi hundred channels to choose from no no Netflix, no nothing to escape into. So books were the only source of escapism for a working class girl in Northern England in the 60s. Um, and I became a voracious reader, you know, which, which I think served me in good stead, to be fair. Oh, beautiful, isn't it? Exactly. That's... One of my favourite books that I ever read as a, as a small child or a smaller child was Little Women. I remember reading Little Women and identifying with the, with the not with the poverty as such we weren't we weren't poverty stricken but we weren't a rich family mm. and and I could and I could and I could identify with lots of the ideals within that that, that were certainly evidenced in my own life um, and and when you begin to see parallels between fantasy and fiction as you grow older if you don't if you don't remember to to distinguish between the two the the edges of your lives get back, get blurred and sort of reality fades into um, illusion shall we say, or the other way around. And mm. um, yeah, and we very quickly, certainly in my case, I very quickly came to wear the badge of the story I was telling myself as my badge of wounded honour. You know, this happened to me and therefore my mental health wasn't my fault. And if my mental health is not my fault, then my, my increasing dependency on alcohol isn't my fault and therefore they can go screw themselves and I can have another drink because it's not my fault. Hello. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Ding dong. That's right. <laughs> because what you have done to me, I show you. I will now drink a whole bottle of vodka. I'll show you. <laughs> yeah, about yeah. that. Exactly. Oh. When did alcohol start coming into your story? When did you start uh, using it for its perceived benefits? Okay. That, that's an easy that's an easy one for me because it actually was um, at a time when I was a very good girl. I, I didn't I didn't even think about dabbling in it until until I legally turned age in, in this country, which at that time was 18. So that would have been 1978. Um, and uh, and I remember going out and having um, I, I was out with friends. My first my very first ever alcoholic drink in a, in a bar somewhere in, in the town where I live was half of lager with a splash of lime, uh, circa as the night, a typical eight, 70s, late 70s, early 80s drink. And, and I liked the taste of it. Um, and I, I had one and then I had another. Uh. 
and and that was fine and I liked it and it was enjoyable but it wasn't an issue but once I started the world of work officially um, uh, after studies and things had finished around about that time it very quickly became that became the norm to go to the pub with your colleagues after work have a couple of beers um weekends lunchtimes um and and I, I met my then I met my now husband in 1977 as a, as a sort of very free-spirited 17-year-old and very quickly after I became of drinking age you know we would go out as a couple on Friday nights and Saturday nights it then expanded from Saturday nights, Saturday nights, Sunday lunchtime, Sunday nights but it was still only ever socially and it wasn't an issue I knew when to stop but round about maybe about six months or so after I'd sort of started my drinking career as I came to call it I, I had the first of um four in, in my in my life in the in total I had my first of four nervous breakdowns I didn't know I was having a nervous breakdown at that time I didn't feel well I was stressed I was anxious um and my my parents said you're 18 now we can't take you to the doctors you need to go and see the doctor you need to go and see him and sort yourself out because clearly something's wrong I kid you not Stefan I was in there all of five minutes I landed back on the pavement with a green prescription slip in my hand and his and his words ringing in my ears which simply were Take two of these twice a day, and in six weeks, you'll be as right as ninepence, which means you'll be really well. That man was an absolute genius. He was elevated to God status very quickly in this 18-year-old's mind. I was incredibly happy. I was upbeat. I was very on point with everything. What I didn't realize was I was also as high as a kite because what he'd given me was a prescription for diazepam, what we now call diazepam, Take two of these twice a day, morning and night, and you'll be right as I was as <laughs> high as a freaking kite, and I had no idea. I was 18 years old. I didn't uh, know. Um, but what ouch. he didn't, yeah, but what he didn't tell me was after six weeks, you need to come back and we'll review your meds and or start to wean you off them. So this 18-year-old did exactly as she was told. The prescription ran out. I was happy, I was cool, everything was fine. And I crashed and burned like I've never crashed and burned. What I didn't know was the dosage was so high that I should have been weaned off it slowly but surely. And, and I actually thought I'd lost my mind. I was in a right state. It, it triggered, to cut a long story short there, it triggered in me two things. A deep mistrust in doctors my grandmother, one of my grandmothers had always said, you always, you never argue with a doctor, a lawyer or a policeman. They always tell you the truth was the family mantra growing up on that one. So I didn't think to question. I didn't think to go back. I was 18 and very naive. And it triggered in me a mistrust in, in medics so that I thought right, clearly he does not know what he's talking about. He's not a God after all. I'll manage somehow. And, and over the years, that triggered in me, I can't, I'm not going back for any more of that rubbish. It made, me, it made me ill, so I'll have a drink. I really can't cope, so I need to go back and it'd be another prescription with a different tablet. And it triggered this stop-start cycle of tentative management from my GP in terms of my mental health and, and very definitely increasingly more so self-medicating in a way that made me feel good. And yes, I might have a bit of a headache by this time the next when I woke up the next day, but it was just a headache and I could cope. And the cycle became over the years increasingly steep and increasingly downward at a rate of knots. 
you know, by the time I was 52, I was at the end of nervous breakdown number four. And I was, I was drinking five bottles of wine per day, every day. Um, I was on 17 different pills and potions, ironically, totaling 44 different, sorry, 17 different prescriptions, totaling 44 different pills and potions for all manner of things that go with being clinically obese. Because I was also seven and a half stone, which is circa 100 pounds in weight, heavier than I am now. Um, I, it wasn't a pretty sight at all. And um, I, I was I was morbidly obese. I had yeah. Crohn's disease. I had high blood pressure. I was on danger of stroking out. And I subsequently found out, coming back to the triggering of mistrusting medics, that five, four or five of the prescriptions that that I was taking legally at that time, not that I ever took any prescriptions illegally, but the, the the prescribed drugs, four of the prescriptions at least were toxic when when prescribed together. That, that contributed to the demise of my liver, courtesy of the other, you know, the other uh, input, completely self-induced by myself, five bottles of wine a day, every day for at least, at least four years towards the end. I was never, I, technically I was never sober for at oh. least five years. Exactly. Mad. Bloody hell. <sighs> Did the pain go away with that? Um. By by the time it got to that stage, I actually wasn't consciously aware that I was actually trying to 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 rid myself of any pain. Um, I think I'd just gone too far down the rabbit hole. I don't think I know I'd gone too far down the rabbit hole. I was no longer thinking about the past at that yeah. point. All I was thinking about at that point was the future and where I would get my next drink. Yeah. Period. I mean, on the on the day that I went to my GP, which was 26th of September 2012 I went for the last I didn't know it was going to be the last at that point but I went for the last in an increasingly long line of routine blood tests because she knew that my liver was in trouble and uh, I mean I was I went to see her I sat down in front of her at half past nine in the morning it was a Wednesday she looked at me she looked at the computer screen she picked her phone up and I said what are you doing and she said I'm phoning for an ambulance and like an idiot I went for I literally looked over my shoulder I was still in that much of a denial um the last words I remember saying are for you you're in big trouble your liver's decompensated it's failing you need to go to hospital and you need to go now at that point I'd already had my first bottle of wine for the day and I was halfway down the second which I'd left on the side and (laughs) the only goal I had in my brain until she delivered that verdict was I need to go home and finish my wine I found out that I found out that I subsequently found out that if I hadn't gone to see her that morning for my blood results, 24 hours later, I actually literally would have been dead. It it was that bad. All my readings were off the freaking chart. Um, She admitted she admitted me to the local hospital, which I vaguely remember. And I woke up five days later in a different hospital. Um, I've got the vaguest of memories of being stark naked on a bed with nothing on, literally no sheet allowed over me with a fan either corner of the bed blowing freezing cold air on me because I was in danger of stroking out. I was that ill. And, and that's the only thing I can remember of those five days. When my, when my, the consultant, I mean, there is no doubt what happened during those five days, apparently, 
was the was I was actually physically chemically detoxed. So when I when I was compass mentis enough to realize that actually I was still conscious and more importantly still alive, and realize where I was, um, day five in the consultant came to see me, sat down and he said to me, "You are a very sick young woman," and I laughed. And he looked at me and he said did you hear what I said? And I said, yeah, you called me young. I'm 52. I'll take that as a compliment. Even then, even then I'm batting it away with, with humor because that's my default setting. Uh, I mean, I used to say, of course I've got a drink problem. I've got two hands, one mouth. That's a hell of a problem. Um, and he just looked at me and he said, I'm not joking. You're out of the, you're not out of the woods. You won the battle. But you haven't won the war. You're still dying. And at that point, Stefan, I did, I, I just, I remember going, looked at my watch and I just remember saying to him, I don't have time. And he said, time for what? Did you not hear what I just said? And I said, no, 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 no. I heard what you said, but I don't have time. I don't have time to do all the things I promised myself that I would do that I never did. Jump out of an airplane on a skydive, go to India, do this, do that. And, and all this stuff that I hadn't thought about in donkey's years came spilling out. And, and having delivered his verdict, he stood up and he left. He was a very, he is still, I mean, I'm still under his care now, almost nine years later, because I have end stage cirrhosis of the liver, but I refuse to acknowledge it. You know, I, I just think, ah, oh, that's it. It's, it. it's behaving itself. It's behaving as though it's not cirrhotic because that's the way I'm <laughs> working it with my mind. But he left, but he left and, and, I'm pretty certain that medical intervention aside, the fact that he told me that day as bluntly as he did that I was still going to die, mm. I'm pretty sure that did more for my mindset than absolutely anything. Because there's one thing you don't tell um, a hard-headed Yorkshire lass when she's been brought up to look after herself and failed to do it and know that everybody now knows that she failed then throw a challenge down and tell me that you're not going to make it you're going to die and I just I actually I remember in the split second that he delivered it thinking I, I've got no idea if how or when I'll get out of this pickle but if I do something's got to change it's got to change for the better forever not only for me and my family but somehow intuitively I knew I'd pay that forward and yet I, I didn't have a roadmap. I didn't have a plan. And at that moment in time, I didn't even have a life because he just told mm. me I was dying, mm. you know. But it's, it's like Bob Proctor, an, an American writer and coach, um, says that, you know, it, when we experience a paradigm shift, then, then, then we are more open to affecting the changes that we need. And for, for people that don't know what a paradigm shift is, it's when, when something happens in your world and it, your world literally tilts on its own axis. Mm. And after that event, you, you know that no, you will not see or hear anything in the same manner again. My worldview changed. My worldview of me changed. My worldview of the world changed. And, and everything that, that went with me or had come with me, I should say, to that far from the past to that mm. point in, in my present, at that moment in time, I decided to leave the past where it needed to be, which was way in the past. <laughs> it had long ago ceased to serve me, and I chose, I made an active choice to take only the lessons I'd learned from that past into, into my then present. And God willing, I made a promise that they would be the only things that I used as a springboard to take me into my future, were, were I ever to make it that far. 
Um, and that sort of brought me ultimately to, to doing interviews like this today and, and writing my blogs and social media posts and, and, and working with people who have an it, not necessarily an addiction, but we all have an it. That, that sort of itch that we can't scratch yet we can't stop or we can't start despite all our best intentions and the promises we make to ourselves and addicts the world round will understand it when I when you know I'll stop I'll stop tomorrow <laughs> I'll, I'll stop on Monday can't I can't not have a drink at the weekend so I'll stop on Monday mm-hmm. what a sober Christmas and New Year now nah, mm-hmm. I'll stop on 1st of January and and never's a long time <laughs> but but speaking as somebody that and it never happened. But speaking as somebody who, who's literally stared the Grim Reaper in the face and declined his offer to join him, there isn't a day that goes by now that I actually am not grateful to be here. And that gratitude is, it shows itself in many ways. Um, but, but in all honesty, would I ever, ever, ever go back to where I once was? Absolutely not. Under no circumstances. I can't do that. I can't. Mm. Um, it, it just can't happen anymore. I, I, I value my own life too much. I value my own life too much. I think the reality is that right now it is even right now it's it's what six o'clock or shortly after six here in the morning, um, and yeah. my brain is probably not on its on its top top function. I'm probably running at eighty percent or so, something like that. Yeah. But even those eighty percent are laser sharp compared with the fog that I've been living in, uh, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago, to actually, to actually take that away from me would be such a painful, painful thing to do. No, 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 no. This energy that lives in me now, that is so powerful and it's driving me forward to explore new areas in my life explore some of the the dodgy things in my life as well i mean yeah it, it is so beautiful to to go back in your own words to actually numb that all again because that's what we're doing just numbing yeah. it and you live in your past suddenly and in the past in the sense of absolutely i, mean, I, would, I would drink I had two bottles of wine, a bit more, and then I would feel relaxed, then I would listen to music, and in my mind, I'm 21 again, and, yeah. you know, all that. This is, right now, I much rather look at the the person I am right now, however imperfect, however yeah. obese, however unfit however that that is that that wreck here is alive with so much energy and power and and beauty inside it's it's gorgeous i i love this this man and this is something i could have never ever ever said eight years nine years ago 
Yeah. I love I'm you. Exactly, I, I'm exactly the same. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I put a post out with, with I, I use I use before and after photographs for me quite a lot across social media. The before photos, I say to people, please feel free to copy that and put it in the windows. It'll put burglars off. Don't worry. Yeah, nobody wants to break in your house if you put that in your window. Um, but but I, I put a meme up. I, I, I sort of do collage of before and after. And I put a header across it. The header said something along the lines of, I love this woman. And underneath it was, I fought hard to become her because I, somebody asked me a little while ago if I could go back to the very first uh, half a lager and lime that I ever drank. Incidentally, six months after starting to drink lager and lime, I ditched the lime because somebody had convinced me that it was the additives in the lime that was giving me a headache. That's how far back my denial goes to 1978 and the lime cordial. Oh, Not dear. even joking there. But I, 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 the answer to that question was, Actually, no, I wouldn't. I would still repeat the mistakes that I made from day one because the person that was making that mistake, those mistakes, I don't recognize. I see her in the pictures, but I don't feel her in here. Mm. That person, I, I, I didn't like. I certainly didn't love her, and I definitely wasn't proud of her. This person, this person, warts and all, my perfectly imperfect self, is somebody I'm damn proud to be. So mm. I now know, with the benefit of hindsight and medical intervention, I now know that this person is the person that, not who I was meant to become, this person is the person I always was, but never had the balls or the courage to show the world. <laughs> and, exactly. and now I show the world, and if you don't like me, that's thank you very much. Um, but that's of no consequence to me. I appreciate your, I appreciate your honesty and I totally get that I'm Marmite. You know, I totally get that. And if I'm not your cup of tea, fine, have a nice life. Um, because it no longer, the opinions of other people no longer have any, any, any pull on my psyche. People pleaser. Absolutely. <laughs> the pendulum has me, swung. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me wrong. I go out of my way still to help people, yeah. but it's on my terms, not theirs. Uh, in yeah. terms of, and I don't mean that in a selfish way, but if I don't, if I genuinely do not have the time to help somebody, it's always a, I can't actually do that just yet, but I promise you I'll come back to you and we can do it on. If I make a commitment, then I follow it through. You know, and as you well know, that might take three or four attempts. But <laughs> nevertheless, I, I have the I have the courage of my convictions, and I make it happen. Um, but there are there have there have been a lot of habits of thought that I've left by the wayside over the last nine and a half years. I don't know about you, Stefan, but I've still got a way to go. I'm still very much a work in progress. <laughs> There are, there are still days when I think, oh, my Lord, she's not replied to my email yet. Why has she not replied to my email? Or did he really say that? What did he mean by that? And yeah. then I have, a, as my dad would have said, Susan, have a stern word of yourself and sort yourself out. So I do. I talk to myself quite a lot. Um, it makes interesting listening sometimes. Mm. <laughs> sometimes, it's sometimes it is actually complete insanity, but I'm used to that. So it's OK. Do you speak out loud when you talk to yourself? Oh Lord, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, that's the benefit these days of earbuds uh, and mobile phones because everybody <laughs> thinks you're talking to somebody else. <laughs> it's sometimes amazing when you 
uh, talk things out loud. And that's something I've, I've realized yeah. by, by doing this, this talk show here, this, this being a host. You During these interviews, you say things and your ears hear that and say, what? And mm -hmm. suddenly you have peeled off another layer of the onion, which yeah. you actually hadn't looked underneath before. And you think, huh, okay. And you think you had dealt with something and then bomb, bomb, there we are. And that's it's, actually, it's amazing. That's where the writing comes in. Uh, the spoken, yes. the written word. The journaling of, I have started, I've restarted doing that myself in a little bit more seriousness, actually just Ooh. making a point, free writing, speed writing, just blur, write what comes out. And yeah. you suddenly look down and think, damn, okay, where did that come where did from? Where did that come from? Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. And I had a few, few uh surprises like that in in the last yeah. two months and it is a it is what it is it just shows that we are work in progress and i love that the, the way you've described yeah. yourself and me Absolutely. in that because it, they're constantly new challenges that's what life yeah. is all about and some challenges that you maybe that blindsided you that you didn't see yeah. coming and they still are there and how do you deal with it and yeah. the last the last two months were not pretty in my life so i actually had to retract into a survival mode and mm. drop a lot of things here and there in order to keep myself sane in and just accept what it was and deal with things I have done so, and I've done so in a way that with hindsight, Christ, had those two months occurred eight years, ten years ago, yeah, I would have been plastered. I would never yeah. I would have drunk in the whole bottle shop. And yeah. it and I would have not dealt with a fraction of yeah. what I have actually actively dealt with now. And it's beautiful. So remember, guys. It's still painful. It's still painful, though, isn't it? We deal with the stuff. And, oh. and got, it's funny you should said that about peeling back the layers of the onion. I, I, I use that analogy all the time. You peel them back, you peel them back. And it's not until you get to the bit in the middle that always makes you cry, that green crunchy bit that nobody eats. But when you hit it, it makes you bawl your eyes out. Oh. You realize you've hit the sweet spot of whatever it is that needed to be uncovered at that point. Yeah. Um, I had a, but I just interrupted you there and I apologize, but I did some work with a group the other last week and it was all surrounding money mindset and this, that, and the other. And the first exercise that we had to do was write down without thinking about it, going back to what you're saying about journaling, our 10 money mantras that we remember inheriting from childhood. And I just, I just jotted down. My dad used to say things like, who do you think I am? Rockefeller. Okay. So that went down and things like that. They all went down. And I wrote this one sentence out and then I carried on the sentence, knowing that I'd got to hand this into a public group. I carried on the sentence in block capitals after I'd finished it, which said, but Jesus Christ, I've not heard of, I've not thought about that for at least 50 years. And the sentence I'd written was, we never had any money growing up, but yet there was always money for cigs and alcohol. In my drinking years, it didn't matter which pill didn't get paid. If I had no money for anything else, I would make sure I had a drink. And I'd not thought about that in 50 years. So the, the, the childhood and, and environmental conditioning from my childhood, actually, even on the most subconscious of levels, has a lot to answer for. And it's beautifully said, beautifully said, because 
you call it conditioning, that's right, the programming that is mm. underlying our emotions. That is happening as a child, like it or lump it. And yeah. it is something that we often don't approach. It is, it, I'm now what, in my seventh year, uh, day 2558, I think it's today. Mm. So, and I'm proud of that. And I worked on my negative emotions and I worked on all the reptilian brain. I thought, yeah, you're doing it well, cool, look at you. And more recently, I worked or I am working with a, with a coach and she is basically looking at exactly this programming, this, this what is actually causing the pattern of negative emotions? What yeah. is actually causing the shame and guilt uh, that that mm. has been there throughout your life? What is yeah. is why are you thinking the way you think? And it's yeah. quite interesting to ask yourself those questions and try to figure out what the hell, why? Because sometimes yeah. when you actually literally spell it out. And you look at it, either in, uh, listen to it or, or read it. You think, what a heap of bullshit. Where's that coming yeah. from? And but it's in there somewhere. What I know now is that everything that ever happens to us, mm. everything, things we see, hear, smell, speak, have spoken to us, we, our unconscious mind never, ever, ever mm. forgets it. Mm. But... It's called an unconscious for a reason, because 99.9% .9 of what goes into our unconscious brain, we never, ever need. The unconscious mind is totally unresponsive to everyday life, mm. but it's totally driving everything we do. Mm. It's like this with the subconscious. Bump. But for instance, if we take racism as a prime example, a child does not grow up to be racist. Mm. Ever. No child is ever born a racist. It learns how to become so. Mm. And as an adult, that might go one way or the other. It may remain a racist or it may not. He may have made his own choices. But whenever a racist, for argument's sake, or an alcoholic has that urge to insult somebody or have a drink, somewhere in our unconscious mind, there's a little prod going to the subconscious going, she doesn't do that, i.e. Mm. she doesn't not have that drink. Reminder mm. to have another drink. She doesn't mm. not have a drink. Or, oh, you've seen somebody of a different colour. Remind her to be insulted. It's... The, I liken our minds to a computer. The, the conscious mind is the operating system. It's the mm. Google or the Microsoft of the yeah. brain. The subconscious is, is the hard drive where we keep all the subfolders, the stuff we need to know <laughs> every day, like remembering how to drive the car when we get into mm. it. And the unconscious mind is our recycle bin. Everything that we ever do, experience, etc., gets dropped in there and it only ever surfaces or resurfaces, I should say, as a, mm. as a product of self-discovery, like you and I are both going through, mm. even now. Mm. And I, I the, the coach that I was working with last week said, said to me, you know, there is so much more to be uncovered from your unconscious brain. You know, you, you, you are going to be a work in progress for a very mm. long time, to which my answer was, well, I hope I have long enough left to live to find it all out then. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. <sighs> Isn't that amazing? It is. Here we are. We too have different genders. We come from very different countries. We are, there are so many differences. Yet, fundamentally, we are close as siblings from yeah. the way 
we have been programmed from the way certain things have been placed in our subconscious. And it's just, it's nuts. It's crazy to actually just realize that. So guys, I mean, there's a reason that you are out there listening to that. So welcome to the club. Welcome to the club of, of, uh, of, of people who are just sort of starting to, to, to explore their own yeah. mind. And it's a bloody minefield. Okay, it, absolutely it is. is. It's and you, you. I mean, often enough, I'm tap dancing on that minefield, and it is just bloody hell. Uh, when you start exploring, things go boom. Okay, yeah. there are, there are, there it's are. It's having emotions. the ability when it's having the ability these days in in sobriety, isn't it, to recognize something that's just gone boom quickly, equally as quickly recognize that actually your default setting is no longer to go have a drink. And then very closely followed by, part of my French, what the f- just happened? You know, oh, right. And then why am I reacting like this? Exactly. Why is that? What is the default setting that's still there that I thought I'd got rid of? Because, you know, I, I said to somebody the other day, listen, you're, you're not much younger than I am. I turned 61 in April. And I, and I said to you, you're not much younger than I am. Just remember how many bloody years it took you to develop that habit. <laughs> You can't realistically expect to unpick it within a week or two weeks. You know, you have to put some hard work in. And I I can honestly say I've never seriously considered having a drink in the last eight and a half years almost. But there have been times of immense stress in my life, Mm. you know, where I have literally jumped in my car, driven off out into the country, stormed into a pub, a really sleepy pub where nobody knows me, and I've marched up to the bar and I've slammed my money on the table, and then I've stood there drumming my fingers on the countertop going, just a minute, just a minute, with a bartender looking at me and I'd say, okay, crazy lady. <laughs> and then I've gone, Diet Coke, no ice, don't put ice in my drink. And he's then decided I am actually really crazy, so he's tentatively given me my Diet Coke without any ice. I've drunk it in one fell swoop, and I've left. I've not done that for a while, but I realized in the early days, I didn't trust myself and I had to be where somebody didn't know me just in case I did fall off the wagon. But I'm proud to say that fingers crossed and touch wood and everything else that, that you know, thus far my resolve stands, stands strong, even in times of stress. And you know what? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like you. I'm only human, but it doesn't mean that I don't think about it. Uh, what? <laughs> I'm laughing because I had... I had exactly the same experience recently. I wanted uh, so you know, I the alcohol is no longer an issue, but sugar is still an issue. So there's, I said, fuck it, I want a cheesecake, not just a, a slice. I want a cheesecake. So I drove to the cheesecake shop here that we have got in town, and I stood there for five minutes. And then I said, no, thank you very much. Um, and I walked back out. And exactly. The salesperson probably thought, what yeah. the heck? <laughs> and it was yeah. exactly that. So sometimes I didn't actually drive to another town to not be seen eating a cheesecake. That's, we're not this bad here. Uh, but <laughs> the bottom line is, yes, same thing. Same thing. Yeah. It is. And sometimes you have to explore that. And sometimes you have to, yeah. to really feel it, smell it do it and then say actually no i do not wish to go back and that yeah. basically is a very powerful position yeah 
that you put yourself I, in. I think when, it's when a we choice. realize, yes, absolutely. Not only is it a choice, but when we realize actually that finally we can largely trust ourselves to make the right choices, mm. then then the courage to carry on and do mm. the other things that we previously had perhaps discounted because we didn't trust ourselves, they become they become far more easier to achieve. And and for me, all achievement starts in here. Mm. It starts in here. I, I, you know, I, I say to people, you know, I, I'm, I'm on a mission to take people from fear to freedom, which sounds a cliche. And then I further expand by saying, no, no, no. I mean, to take you from living a life where you are looking at your life through a lens of fear, which is driven by the anxiety mm. in a mind that is yours alone to control, turning that lens around and seeing the opportunity that life is and moving from a fear-based way of living to living freely where it counts the most, which is inside the mind that is yours alone to control and create the life that is yours alone to live, regardless of what Joe Public thinks. And that's so important, isn't it? Because many, many, many guests I talk to have been people pleasers. They have been trying to to do everything for everyone and completely lost themselves in the process. And I was not much different. I was, if, if you asked me to eight years ago, who are you? I would have said, oh, I'm a pain physician. I'm an anesthetist. Yeah, no, no, no. Who are you? No, I just told you. I'm, I'm, I could only identify with the work that I was doing, that I was doing yeah. 16 hours a day for crying out loud. That didn't help. But uh, it is, I had lost myself yeah. in that way. I'd forgotten who I was. And then when I came into rehab and thereafter, with hindsight, there was this blank canvas where yeah. I could reinvent myself and that is actually so beautiful, so exciting, exhilarating, mind-blowing uh, what I did. And, and I, I followed my heart. Uh, and it was, it was bizarre. The journey that yeah. came out of that is out of this world. So guys out there, if you listen to that, listen to my voice, listen to that. This is not me on speed. This is me having just realized this, this opportunity that the universe or God or whoever is out there has given me to recreate myself and to transform myself into that person that Absolutely. deep inside I deserved and wanted to be. And that I, due to circumstances, sometimes in my control, sometimes beyond my control, was never actually going for. Yeah. But once you actually strip yourself naked to the bone, when you actually put big, strong searchlights into your soul and start working with the shit that is in there, with the programming, work with the, the emotions that are there, try to figure out, uh, first of all, accept them that they are there, try to figure out yep. why they are there and then actually do something about them. Do the new micro habits, do the new things that you suddenly are no longer f- eaten by shame and guilt about the behavior patterns that you do, that uh, yeah. the hiding. I mean, how much hiding did you do? Out of interest, out of interest. Uh, at the end, did you still hide your wine bottles? Did you? I never, I never, I was never, ever, ever a secret drinker, ever. Ah. 
I used to come home from work. I yeah. was a bit like Sue Ellen in Dynasty in the late 80s, early 90s. I'd walk in through the back door, I'd throw my keys on the counter, I'd pick up a bottle and I, you know, I call my husband by his name, clearly not by the name JR. Uh, and, I'd, and I would drink while I was having dinner. And by the time it got to the end, by the time it got to sort of 2012, I'd be coming home from work and I knew there were bottles in the house or at least there had been when I went to work that day, and it was my husband that was hiding the bottles and pouring them down the uh, sink and stuff like that. Um, uh, so I, I, I was in, it was Sheffield where I lived at that time, which is the fourth largest city in the UK. I was Sheffield's biggest open secret. There was only me that didn't know that everybody else that I knew actually knew I was a roaring drunk. You know, I, one of the first things that hit me when, when, when Prof Gleason told me that, why I was there and all that business my, my, the first moment of shame that I remember was oh my god everybody's going to know seriously there wasn't anybody that didn't know me and pre plenty of people who actually did not know me at all that didn't know that I was an absolute drawing drunk you know and the, my denial was such that that I, I had it under control nobody could tell that I was drunk <laughs> Nobody knew that I was drinking this much. Uh, we we had a, we ha, we have recycling bins here in this country uh, just for glass. Yeah. And 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 everybody, and I mean literally everybody on our street knew it was recycling day when my bin was emptied because <laughs> it was all glass and it was all wine bottles and uh, and still the denial was nobody will know. Now they're going to know because I'm in hospital. Mm, no, I think a couple of I think a couple of uh, Wine plantations went bust in the six weeks I was in hospital, to be fair, but <laughs> I hear you, girl. I hear you. Yeah. So no, but then again, it is what you've described is is 95% of alcoholics will deny that they have yeah. got a problem. And we yeah. are we are we are some of us are high functioning or were high functioning at the height of their, their game. But I debate that this is truly a high yeah. function or we were just functioning. That's probably- Hanging a, on a, by a thread. <laughs> you're lucky that you haven't had your, your um, driving under influence DUI. Uh, yeah. You were lucky I, that- I actually don't know. How I, I do not know how I got away with that. Honestly, I don't know. But it's uh, more by good luck than by design, and that much, and that, and I don't say that proudly. Mm. I say that with with much shame on that respect, because mm. you know the the the, uh, the thought that I could have killed innocent people, mm. conceivably, yeah. even now fills me with horror. Mm. Um, exactly. But um, yeah, it, we can't undo the past, and I don't I, I don't live there anymore. So. It's uh, we we that's true. we know we know when we know better we do better, and that's a mantra that I live by, wow. and I don't beat myself up about it anymore. The yeah. past, forgiving. I don't know about you, Stefan, but for me, a large part of of moving on from the past was not just forgiving the past and the person in it and all that business that I blamed, but forgiving myself for my part in that. You know, I I was very as a child, I was a complete innocent. I didn't have any control over the things that happened to me at the hands of one particular person. However, as a, as a person who morphed into adulthood very early, I was a very mature in my head intellectually, circa 16, 17, and definitely by the time I was 18 and started drinking, I, I was so focused on a past that had so long ago served to cease me, ceased to serve me, sorry, 
that I actually forgot to take responsibility, not only for the choices that I was making, which were quite mm. poor, but also their consequences. Mm. That for me in the early days of my recovery, circa 212, it was a hell of a wake up call, a light bulb moment, if you like, and I go, oh my God, if I'd have only taken responsibility for that first hangover I ever had, mm. or the first time I had more than one bottle of wine and realized the red flag you know, didn't see it as a green light to have another one because I was enjoying it so much. If I'd only taken, but if onlys don't change the world, if onlys don't change the world, it's what we do today that dictates the future, not what happened in the past. Absolutely. And that is so important. I mean, right now, we have good choices. Right now, the sheer yeah. fact that two of us are opening our soul and discussing these things means that we actually relive some of our emotions. And then after this discussion, there will be a moment of soul searching in my mind and that, and, and I will be extremely grateful. And that, that's inevitably happens after every single interview. I mean, I'm so grateful to people like you, to my guests who are, holding the mirror in front of my face and who allow me to explore again the past, but more as in not, oh my God, look what you did, take the whip out and whip myself, but rather, I remember, I remember. Yeah. But the past does not equal the future. And no. it is that beautiful mantra that is so powerful no, whatever the past was, it doesn't define me. It propels me forward. It's the catalyst for me to do other things nowadays. It is, I would have been going back to bed after after anything in the morning and with a massive hangover. And I probably, you know, until four o'clock this afternoon, then I would have had a short moment of, okay, I will not drink. And then by six o'clock, I would say, oh, come on, just just one and then by two o'clock in the morning, I would be dancing and having a good time. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, right. And nowadays, I will finish this interview. I will have some breakfast. I will then go out and, and do my, my hobby and, and have a ball of a time, do some physical exercise. Yeah. And it is just such a different life. But it's a life that I choose to live. There, there is no longer that demon that drives me like, like a bloody like a jockey on my back where I'm the, the horse with the blinkers no it is just so beautiful and I want to invite all of you out there to to come onto that journey and it is it's a journey that hurts it's a journey that equally is so fulfilling and and cheesy and corny at times because it is so there are such beautiful moments there where you think Damn, this is this is just not true. This is just oh. So guys, please, please, please. If Sue can get her shit together, if I can get my shit together, really, what stops you? Do you really think that that your circumstances are so unique that 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 it's impossible to to put a stop to to your behavior and just make that little choice today? Just make that little choice of an action right now that is maybe a bit different than the choice that you've made so far. Absolutely. Exactly. So it is, we all have got those same seconds in the day. 
we all choose what we do each and every moment. It's full of choices. And nowadays, I choose to love myself. However crap that sounds, however corny that might sound in your ears, it still sounds shit in my ears, I do admit that. But because of that, I'm using it. I'm yeah. using it because that's what I truly want to do. I want to love myself. So why does it sound shit in my ears? Do I not deserve love? So there's, there's the programming happening here as I speak. Why does it sound crazy that I want to love myself? It only okay. sounds crazy to us. <laughs> well, exactly. It's so bizarre. And here we would do everything for our children, grandchildren, whatever, whatever, you know, for everyone else, we're doing everything. But for ourselves, oh, God, we're self-destructive to the, the we're weapons of self-destruction, as Robin Williams put it so, so perfectly in one of his shows. Yeah. Hell, 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 hell. So, I mean, you, you, nowadays you are, you're just, you have come this far out that you started to give back. When did that journey actually start? So you were on Probably. death door in 2012. Yeah. yeah. What happened? 2012, I spent six weeks in hospital fighting for my life, literally. I went home just before Christmas that year. And I spent maybe about 18 months just recovering, getting well physically. Um, but this part of my life didn't actually start until towards the end of 2017. Wow. So, so not quite four years. And, and I'm loving it. It's, it's a, every day is different. Mm. Nothing's ever the same. And, <laughs> and I live it in, and I live my life these days in glorious Technicolor. <laughs> Instead of existing shadows of a grayed out mind that long ago relinquished, relinquished to con its control to the bats in the belfry. That's They've gone now. And now I see, I see life for the wonderful opportunity that it is. <laughs> yeah, guys, just check Sue's uh, Instagram account out. Uh, there's uh, the, the before and after pictures there. Always put a smile on my face because there is, there is, it's just shows such a transformation. And sometimes you don't see transformations as obvious, but with you, it's bloody black and white for crying out loud. You, you lost how many pounds? Uh, uh, circa 100, seven and a half stone. <laughs> a stone is 6.6 kilograms, so that gives you that. Oh, bloody hell. So, yes, you change your life very, very actively. And it is amazing what a good nutrition, what some exercise and what, what the right things. I, I learned very early on, Stefan, that self-care is, is an act of sanity, not exactly. vanity. Exactly. No, Bless and it is, and it's it's so beautiful. It's so nice to actually look after yourself. Does that mean you never, ever, ever will have a piece of cheesecake? No. No. Does exactly. So please, let's it not. It just means silly. I don't eat the whole bloody thing now. <laughs> and not, you know, cheesecake for it. Well, no, no. I've got a very varied diet. I've got chocolate cheesecake in the morning, followed by vanilla cheesecake at lunchtime, followed by you know, you get the idea. Balance. No. No, balance, exactly. So, yeah. and if I nowadays decide to splurge, if I nowadays decide to have a pizza rather than uh, a chicken breast with some uh, some veggies, then I actually say, it's pizza time. And now I treat myself to that pizza. And there is, it's a treat. It's a, puts a smile on my face, no guilt, 
No more guilt. No. That shame and guilt, these evil twins, I've, I have banned them as much yeah. as possible from my life because I, I know that I get to make choices. This is yeah. an opportunity that I have and I'll make those choices and I will live with the consequences. And uh, if, you, if you take that ownership over your life, then suddenly yeah. you are in such a powerful position. It's no longer other people riding you. It is no longer, no longer the thoughts of others that somehow drive your behavior. It's you. How Absolutely. cool is we're, that? We're in the driving seat. Isn't it? The thing is, people like you and I, we've only just realized we're in the driving seat <laughs> relatively, relatively early on. And <laughs> do you know what? I don't know about you, Stephen, but I get away a lot these days by saying to folk, give me a break. I'm only eight. I'm still learning. <laughs> Yes, yes, I love it, love it. And that's actually not, not, not a wrong thing because emotionally you basically stop developing the moment you start using, drinking, etc. So there are a lot of 50-year-old teenagers out there um, who, who have never learned to deal with their emotions, etc. because they have numbed everything for the last... 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And now finally they are, they are taking that, that weird, weird numb sensation away. And now they get to, to experience the real feelings for what they Absolutely. are. Beautiful, horrendous, terrifying, everything that feelings and emotions are. And I, I agree. I mean, I, I always say, you know, these days, good, whether the day turns out to be good, bad or indifferent, it's a blessing. That's and a, we, we, if we know, if, we, if we're open to seeing the lessons that we, we are meant to learn each day, then it's, it's always a blessing, whether it's good or indifferent or bad or whatever it is. It's seeing it, it's having the ability, it's the difference between listening and hearing, looking and seeing. <laughs> yeah, there's a massive difference. Yeah. Drinking and not. <laughs> <laughs> so true, so true. Oh, Sue. Uh, there are, how can people get hold of you? Because I know you're very active out there. You're developing yourself, but you help others as well. Tell us a bit about the work you're doing. Um, I, I, I basically work with people who I deem to be professional swans. Now, clearly they're not swans and most of them aren't professional in the, in the sense that, that that would mean in terms of their business life and so on and so forth. A professional swan is somebody who I deem to be those amongst us, myself and you included, I suspect, pre-eight years ago. Those of us that glide serenely through life, giving the impression they don't have a care in the world and yet underneath they're puzzling like crazy just to stay afloat. The fear of being seen to be vulnerable, lacking in some way, you know, not enough. <laughs> failure god forbid these people i work with to help them to reframe how they see themselves their lives the situations and and using simple yet effective strategies show them how to live happier more meaningful lives without their it whatever their it happens to be whether that's addiction of some sort or the self-limiting negative beliefs and behaviors that that many sober people have anyway hmm. so i i i have a uh, i have a facebook group called everything begins and ends with you it's a support group. It's a free group. That's on, uh, I said on Facebook, and I will say, but it's, I called it that everything begins and ends with you because I realized about six years ago that actually it does. Hmm. 
everything starts in here and in here. And when we can get the mind-body connection right, you know, we are so much more well-equipped to deal with everything that life throws at us. So the stresses and the overwhelm and the mm. imposter syndrome and the I'm not enough and saying yes when no would be more sensible. It's a big mishmash, but essentially I help people to, to live happier, more meaningful lives by taking responsibility for what they already have. Mm. And if they don't like it, showing them how to move from the shadows into glorious technicolor. Um, so you can find me in, in, my, in my group, everything begins and ends with you. You can find me at Sue S-U-E-C-U-R-R on, on, face, on Facebook. Uh, there will usually be a picture of me there, this face, not the 10 dozen other Sue that are out there. And if anybody actually wants to reach out to me privately, they can just reach me at Sue at Sue Incidentally, my son said to me, Mother, you do realise that's the world's most shit email, don't you? And I said, yes, dear, but it's the only one your father can remember. <laughs> hey. so, yeah. uh, isn't it amazing isn't it amazing the children still they don't focus on what you do really well the sheer fact the transformation etc what a should email <laughs> I'm, I'm just i'm just a mother what do i know exactly oh please <laughs> see not just not just in my life but yeah. that's a complete different story that's a different interview i'm so so pleased that we connected i'm so honored to to have had the opportunity to interview you because you're such a force of power now such a, 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 a it's it's just a force of nature i should say uh, it is it's beautiful it is and this force this this energy comes from the willingness to be honest to transform to so i guess the self-love has brought out this new you which is just an amazing you so sue it, it, thank you it comes back to what i was saying you know i finally have the courage to be who i really am uh, and that's that would be my wish for everybody on the planet oh be yeah who you really are and if you need a hand just give me a shout <laughs> <laughs> not, cool. all seven, not all 7.8 billion of you at once because my time yeah. is finite <laughs> <laughs> exactly and you know to prioritize so we are no longer giving ourselves away uh left right and center to everyone else at the detriment of ourselves now it is uh but here we are guys you have had an hour of sue's time and an hour with me there were so many beautiful messages in there. Just, you know, hopefully this allows you to rethink a bit about your life and make some conscious decisions right now when you switch off. Right now you can make one decision. What will it be that changes your life, that, that helps you to become the person that you truly want to become? Might it be that you want to write something down? Might it be that you want to have a glass of water and rehydrate? That you have some healthy food? That you might actually say, I actually go for a walk now. And what will it be? Make make the call right now when this, this interview finishes. Before that, however, you have one important task. There's this little subscribe button down there. Press that subscribe button because otherwise you, you, you get 
so many interviews passing you by and you don't know the, all the, the gorgeous guests that are coming onto my show. And it is, uh, I will not stop in a hurry for a long time because it is so wonderful. I've got so many people that are great to talk to and um, I'm blessed with guests like you, Sue. So thank you so much for being on my show. My pleasure. You guys look after yourself, Sue. You have a fantastic time in the UK. I know your vaccination uh, is going like mad over there. So hopefully the, the UK soon turns the corner and you guys can come out of your, your lockdowns and, and start living alive again. Indeed, uh, so wish it to you. And to you all out there, I wish you a fantastic day. Stay strong, guys, and look after yourself. Bye.